Hello, and welcome to the Lemon Tree Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Allison Sukameli. Each week, I'll be taking the science of positive psychology, adding a little humor, and through evidence-based research, provide you with tools and strategies to help you live a life of peace and purpose. In this episode, as requested, I'll be talking about the psychology of heartbreak. But first, teachers, counselors, admin, and anyone in search of some free self-care tips, lesson plans, and organizers, check out my shop on TPT called The Lemon Tree by AKS. Again, that's teacherspayteachers.com, and my shop name is The Lemon Tree by AKS. And if you'd like some daily inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at The Lemon Tree Coaching. Okay, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Lemon Tree Coaching Podcast, or TLT for short. One of the questions that I get a lot is, how can positive psychology help you heal a broken heart? And that's a complicated question with many variables. And as you recall, positive psychology is the study of human strengths and flourishing, and we can rise from the ashes of a broken heart, but it may not be with the snap of our fingers, but positive psychology is here to help. And most of us know what a broken heart feels like, and will do almost anything never to experience that feeling again, but there is some good that can come from this experience or experiences. I've certainly had my heart broken more than once in my lifetime, but it has also made me who I am today. And we don't get to pick who we fall for, and when we do experience a broken heart, we can't just tell ourselves to get over it and everything is fine. It can wipe you out both mentally and physically. But the big question is, why can't we just decide to get over it? Why is the process of recovery so hard when it comes to heartbreak? Several people have complained about feeling bad after a breakup even when they knew the relationship was toxic or really didn't even feel happy most of the time while they were in it. So why? To answer this age-old question, let's turn to the psychology of heartbreak to help manage heartbreak and find some answers to these questions. Researchers have actually been studying love for a long time, and when it comes to romantic rejection, they know that there is a profound sense of loss similar to losing someone to death, which can result in depression. The research also shows that when your brain experiences heartbreak, it's kind of like coming off drugs and the same reward addiction and emotion regulation systems are in play when it comes to going through a breakup. If we look deeper into the science behind love, we want to classify love as an emotion. However, emotions researcher Barbara Fredrickson describes love as more of an umbrella term, which she defines as the preoccupying and strong desire for further connection, the powerful bonds people hold with a select few, and the intimacy that grow between them the commitments to loyalty, and faithful. There is actually a lot of debate among researchers as to whether or not love is an emotion. For instance, Dr. Enrique Buronat, spelled B-U-R-U-N-A-T, now retired, did research in cell biology, evolutionary biology, and neuroscience for almost 40 years. He worked in education, psychology, and medicine, and at the Institute of Astrophysics of the Canary Islands. 
He was working until recently at the Department of Clinical Psychology, Psychobiology, and Methodology at the University of La Laguna in Spain. And Dr. Burnot says that romantic love, referred to as love, is a physiological drive, but society has come to understand it as an emotion. Nevertheless, many researchers, mainly psychologists, have established its impulsive and motivational characteristics, which are even similar to those of addictive drug abuse. However, many professionals in the field of psychology and psychiatry still consider love to be a complex emotion or feeling. In Burunat's article, Love is Not an Emotion, he describes some of the causes and consequences of the extensive confusion between love and emotion. Some reasons to consider love as a physiological motivation, like hunger, thirst, sleep, and sexuality, are also summarized. He also proposes a love withdrawal syndrome in which in the same way as addiction to opiates, cocaine, and other drugs, the pleasure associated with love, when interrupted, may cause a withdrawal syndrome. This has been referred to as love withdrawal syndrome, or LWS, taking into account its equivalence with opioid withdrawal syndrome. LWS shares features with depression and with obsessive-compulsive disorder, but is characterized as a withdrawal syndrome because it is associated specifically with the lack of a particular person more than with the lack of a sexual partner. And some of the characteristics of LWS includes anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure, which is a common symptom of depression, as well as other mental health disorders. Most people are capable of understanding what pleasure feels like. Other symptoms of LWS includes obsessive or ruminative thinking, mood disorder, sleep and feeding disturbances, and the most important to emphasize, an extraordinary suffering which is incomparable with any other previous life event. And Bernat's article concludes by highlighting the urgency to eliminate love from the catalog of emotions in psychology as an item or cluster in psychological tests and also as an emotional mental function by contributing to its dramatic consequences, mainly divorces and suicides. And having taught William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet for a number of years to high school students, I find it odd when grown people say to me that they want a love like Romeo and Juliet. Did you even read the play? They die in the end due to infatuation, not love, regardless of it being classified as an emotion or not. If we look beyond literary fiction, it is a reality that breakups and failures can cause both the contemplation and completion of suicide. If you are interested in learning more about the research, I will leave a link in the show notes to Burnout's article, or you can search for it by title, Love is Not an Emotion. I think it's a really good article on this topic. On the other hand, if you look to articles published by Very Well Mind, they define love as a set of emotions and behaviors characterized by intimacy, passion, and commitment. It involves care, closeness, protectiveness, attraction, affection, and trust. 
and one article called How to Know When You Love Someone by Kendra Cherry details psychologist Zick Rubin's scales of liking and loving. And Rubin says romantic love is made up of three elements. Attachment, which he defines as needing to be with another person and desiring physical contact and approval. Caring, which Rubin defines as valuing the other person's happiness and needs as much as your own. And intimacy, which he explains as sharing private thoughts, feelings, and desires with the other person. And based on this view of romantic love, Rubin developed two questionnaires based on his ideas of romantic love to measure the three variables of attachment, caring, and intimacy. This measure is known as Rubin's Scales of Liking and Loving, and you can easily find it online or in the show notes. But returning to heartbreak, whether you were deeply rooted in the relationship and happily in love or exiting an unhappy relationship, researchers discovered that it does not matter because the brain is still in motivation mode and the neurons still expect a reward. And when we are in love or going through a breakup, we essentially behave like a drug addict. Logic is at a loss. You can't trust what you think is best for yourself, so it may be important to turn to your support group of trusted family and friends, as well as professional help if needed. Breaking away from a relationship, regardless of what role you are in, can be difficult and not something that you want to try to do completely on your own. Researchers have also noted that when it comes to heartbreak, our brain sends out a fight or flight signal, as if we are about to be killed if we don't react. This is known as dichotomous thinking, or what psychologists refer to as black or white thinking, in which your thought patterns assign things such as people, actions, and so on to two categories deemed either good or bad. This pattern of thinking is also considered a cognitive distortion or a thinking pattern also known as splitting. And according to Psych Central, some warning signs of black and white thinking consist of the following. Using extreme terms to describe everything such as always and never, perfect and failure, easy and impossible. Black and white thinkings also consist of perfectionism. You may think that you must do something perfectly or not attempt it at all. I see this a lot in the high school classroom when it comes to students completing their work. If they suffer from perfectionism, students will often not turn in completed work if they do not feel it is perfect. Some complete assignments, continue to try to make them perfect, cannot do so by the due date, and then refuse to turn the assignment in because in their eyes it is not perfect, resulting in a zero on the assignment despite it being done. And the long-term effects of this can be failing a class. And black and white thinking also includes the inability to see either the good or bad in a person. And this can lead you to believe someone must be only one or the other. Another feature of this cognitive distortion is negative self-talk. Since it's very uncommon to do everything perfectly well all the time, if you're using black or white thinking, you might refer to yourself as useless or as a failure. And this is where reframing would be essential. 
Cognitive reframing is a technique that you can use on your own without a therapist or coach to shift your mindset so you're able to look at a situation, person, or relationship from a slightly different perspective and change your cognitive distortion or negative self-talk. Black and white thinking can also include the fear of trying new things. If all you can imagine is a complete success or total failure, you will try your best to avoid that failure, even if it means not taking action when it comes to a certain task. Of course, from an evolutionary standpoint, fight or flight helped our brains during times of survival going way, way back to prehistoric times. We did not have time to consider our options unless we wanted to instantly get killed. And in terms of heartbreak, black and white thinking may look like, oh, I'm never going to find love again, or I'm just going to date anyone who asks because I don't care anymore, or they were the best person I've ever dated, or they were pure evil and everything that has gone wrong in my life is because of them. Thinking in these extremes eliminates the possibility of the potential reality in between and may increase our chances of depression. An important thing to practice is extreme spotting, similar to strength spotting that I talked about in an earlier episode. Essentially, try to spot your extreme thinking, be aware of extreme words such as always or never, and when you catch yourself using such words, take a moment to pause and reflect on the statements you are making to yourself and ask if this is the most constructive statement you could be making. Is it really true? Is there proof? How could I reframe the statement into a more positive one that will better serve me? And if you have trouble noticing your thoughts or need help with reframing, you may want to consider reaching out to a psychologist who specializes in CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, who can assist you in noticing your extreme thoughts and help bring you into a more balanced state of being. And for more, take a look at the article, How Does Black and White Thinking Affect Your Mood and Behavior by Psych Central. And when it comes to dealing with heartbreak, research has also shown that we tend to not accurately remember details of the relationship. I often think back to past relationships in which I find myself missing the person for a moment, but if I'm really honest with myself, in some cases, I am neglecting to acknowledge the bad stuff that did in fact contribute to the breakup, whether I was the person initiating it or not. And according to psychologist Lawrence Patius of the University of California, Irvine, false memories afflict all of us. We can even trick ourselves into thinking that we remember something correctly when in fact we do not. This does tend to happen when we are stressed and experiencing a heartbreak. And a researcher at Arizona State University, Sabrina Segal, says when people experience a traumatic event, the body releases two major stress hormones, norepinephrine and cortisol. And norepinephrine boosts heart rate and controls the fight or flight response, commonly rising when individuals feel threatened or experience highly emotional reactions. It is chemically similar to the hormone epinephrine, better known as adrenaline. 
And these stress hormones cause us to focus on the negative while neglecting the positive side of our experiences. When we go through a heartbreak, we often rehash the relationship in our own mind to friends or family as we desperately try to make sense of the pain and suffering we are experiencing. This is dangerous, though, and unproductive when it comes to healing because we tend to re-traumatize ourselves and repeat going through the pain over and over, even when scientifically what we tell ourselves or repeat to others is not true. So again, the advice here would be to catch yourself in extreme thoughts and reframe those thoughts. This goes for friends or family members as well, who may have good intentions and think they are helping you, but really only are contributing to the unproductive negativity. I remember one of my first heartbreaks in high school and doing just this with a friend whom I worked with. She would tell me over and over again that the boyfriend that broke up with me was probably thinking about me too. She said this time and time again, only to unintentionally make the situation more painful and drawn out. And heartbreak can also trigger what is called psychological shock, also known as emotional shock or acute stress reaction. This is essentially a reaction to the heartbreak or another traumatic event that is unexpected that upsets you and makes it difficult for you to function. And in the article, Seven Warning Signs You Are Suffering from Emotional Shock by Dr. Sherry Jacobson describes the red flags as the following. One, you feel afraid. Two, you can't think straight. Three, you are experiencing physical side effects. Four, you feel strangely exhausted. Five, you are all over the place. Six, you feel like and are acting like a completely different person. And seven, things just seem pointless. And for more on each warning sign, check out Jacobson's article, Seven Warning Signs You Are Suffering from Emotional Shock from Harley Therapy. There are several other articles that you can explore here as well. But please note, when it comes to emotional shock, everyone has their own timeline when it comes to processing it, moving through it, and healing. Often like grief, shock comes in waves. And in a previous episode, we talked about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five common stages of grief, also known as DABDA. They include denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And we often go through the same stages when it comes to dealing with heartbreak. Something you can practice is spotting the symptoms of emotional shock, allow yourself a break, have low expectations of yourself as you process and heal, and practice good self-care. But there is not one plan for getting over a broken heart, and no one will get over heartbreak in the same way or in the same time frame, but you can accept that it may take some time, some significant time, for the hurting to stop. And as Brene Brown explains in her research on heartbreak, I learned that heartbreak is more than just a painful type of disappointment or failure. It hurts in a different way because heartbreak is always connected to love and belonging. And read more of Dr. Brown's research, and you can check out her book, Rising Strong. She goes on to say, the brokenhearted are the bravest among us. They dared to love. 
And if you recall from prior episodes, bravery is one of the 24 character strengths that falls under the virtue category of courage. And if you have yet to find out your signature character strengths, you can take a quick and friendly assessment at theviacharacter.org. It's a free survey. And the site states that being brave is to face your challenges, threats, or difficulties. It involves valuing a goal or conviction and acting upon it, whether popular or not. A central element involves facing rather than avoiding fears. And there are three types of bravery that an individual may possess, one or a combination of. The first is physical bravery. So we tend to think of physical bravery being exemplified by firefighters, police officers, and soldiers. Next, there's psychological bravery. For example, facing painful aspects of oneself. And there's moral bravery, which would be exemplified by speaking up for what's right, even if it's an unfavorable opinion to a group. And senior psychologist at Counseling in Melbourne, Amelia Campbell, offers up this advice when it comes to coping with breakup grief. Don't date anyone for a while. And I think this is extremely important advice. Often our friends will encourage us to begin dating immediately after a breakup. I know I'm guilty of it in the past, but you do need to take the time to go through the breakup grieving process, again, similar to that of someone passing away, and give yourself time to come to terms with how your life is going to be different now that this person is no longer going to be in it. Next, practice self-care. During this time, you should be putting yourself first and focusing on your personal needs. Of course, this doesn't mean you should neglect children or pets, but recognize that you need to give yourself time and space to heal in a healthy way. The next piece of advice is to focus on self-growth and consider this an opportunity to examine your life and reevaluate it. Has anything been missing? Is there anything the relationship had prevented you from doing? What are your values? How can you create a life of peace and purpose driven by values and meaning? And you may recall from a recent episode the talk about post-traumatic growth, which the National Institutes of Health define as a positive psychological changes experienced as a result of the struggle with trauma or highly challenging situations, one of which is dealing with heartbreak. And Campbell goes on to advise us to remember what you used to enjoy. Sometimes our own interests can get eaten up by a relationship and we lose sight of them. The end of a relationship can sometimes provide us with the opportunity to reconnect with ourselves and remember who we were prior to the relationship. And we don't always intend to lose ourselves in a relationship, but it can happen. So try to recall activities that used to bring you happiness and other positive feelings and start doing them again. And finally, let others support you. That may be in the capacity of family or friendships or even professional support in the form of a licensed psychologist. This is an important time for trusted people to be close to you and support you along your journey of healing and moving forward. This will help you engage in self-love and increase your self-esteem. 
All in all, recovering from a heartbreak can be messy, and it may take some time before you are ready to listen to the advice of the researchers. And that's okay. When you are ready, you have the information backed by science that you can put into action when the time is right for you. Remember to identify black and white thinking and reframe any extreme thinking into more positive and balanced thinking and use the help of a professional as needed. Okay, so there you have it. In this episode, we talked about the psychology of heartbreak, including why the process of healing from heartbreak can be so difficult. And kind reminder to check out the Flourishing Co.'s Joy Journal in their shop at theflourishingco.com, as well as my TPT shop called The Lemon Tree by AKS for some free lesson plans, organizers, and self-care tips at teacherspayteachers.com. Again, my shop name is The Lemon Tree by AKS. And if you'd like some daily inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at The Lemon Tree Coaching. Okay, as usual, it's been a pleasure sharing the space with you, and I will see you next week with more evidence-based research, tools, and strategies grounded in positive psychology. I'm Dr. Allison Sukumeli. Have a great week.